0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, back in 1970, or thereabouts, Tyler, uh, we formally, as we as in the United States of America, formally christened the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, one of the great federal agencies, I think, in our uh, uh, government. Uh, and we're going to talk about that history today. It is the 50th anniversary of the agency this year. It is.
1: Big five zero, 0 And uh, today we're going to learn about an interesting program at in NOAA.
0: Yeah. You know, I think this is a great opportunity to learn about the agency, but also about a very specific program uh, called the Voices Oral History Archive, uh, which is a project to record the practitioners of NOAA, the scientists and the employees and the contribution they have made to the agency over the last 50 years. Um, And our guest today is Molly Graham, who is the program manager for the Voices Oral History Archive, or or as we're going to refer to it in this discussion, Voices. That's right. And uh, this is this is, Peter, something that we
1: think a lot about here. the What is the value of uh, recording all these interviews? Now, we're not doing oral histories per se, but, man, we do think a lot about this, and I think there's something to be said for listening to the voices uh, that come before us and uh, archiving what they have to say and going back. Man, I love this stuff. I am so excited. But before we get into it, ladies and gentlemen, we do need to... Uh, Pause for a minute for our sponsors.
2: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new coastal resilience department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
0: Well, Molly Graham, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us and our listeners on uh, ASPN.
3: Thank you. I'm thrilled to talk with you.
0: Well, I've got to, I'll admit up front, I'm very biased. NOAA is one of the, my favorite government agencies, and uh, I believe everybody should have a favorite federal agency, but uh, NOAA is an extremely competent uh, organization, that the best scientists in the federal government, I believe. Uh, are at NOAA and the work that the agency does so important to everybody around the American shoreline. So we're really uh, looking forward to learning about what you're doing in your oral history project. Uh, Tell us how you got involved in this particular effort. How, how, How long have you been at the agency and what got you into the Voices Oral History Archive?
3: Sure. It's a little bit of a winding road. I've been with Voices for about three years now, but I've worked as an oral historian and radio documentarian for over 10 years now. Um, When I was in college, I went to Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. I ran the college radio station there, and I wrote my thesis on early female radio broadcasting pioneers. These were women who uh, were involved in radio, but didn't make it into the history of broadcasting, and so I tried to tell their stories. And then after college, I went to a place called the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Um, And there I learned to become a radio documentarian and make podcasts. But this is really before podcasts were called podcasts because they weren't so portable then. This was in 2009, just on the cusp. And my first documentary was about these two guys who claimed to be abducted by aliens in Maine's Allagash Wilderness. (laughs) And, um, but it was really about what does it mean when the most important thing in your life is something that no one believes. And at salt is where I developed my technique for recording. My big push as an oral historian has been to get oral historians to the standards of public radio. Your interviews should sound good. They should be recorded on professional gear, good bit rate, sample rate, all of those kinds of things. You should record good stories on good tape. It's also where I developed my approach to doing oral history, um, which is an approach we call Felt Life Recording. It's a term borrowed from Henry James, and it means the closest kind of understanding of a person. Um, I was really embedded with these abductees, and I got to eat breakfast with them, have sleepovers Mm -hmm. with them. We watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind together. Um, I I named my daughter after one of them. I have a daughter named Charlie. Charlie was one of the abductees. And so you get close and you get to understand their perspective and my approach to interviewing abductees has been the same approach I've taken to all the folks I've interviewed since, Uh, World War II veterans, civil rights activists, uh, genocide survivors, and now for NOAA, uh, the eyewitnesses to the changing coast, climate, environment, and atmosphere. I was working as an oral historian and professor of oral history at Rutgers University for a number of years and then when I got pregnant I wanted to be back in Maine where I'm from and it's been my home base for a long time and I saw this position come up over my maternity leave and I just felt so lucky that the timing was perfect and it allowed me to work remotely and flexibly which was really perfect for a new mom. And uh, allowed me to adjust fairly seamlessly to the, you know, pandemic and work-at-home orders.
1: Wow. Well, I have just so many questions, but uh, <laughs> what an interest! So, can, can you tell me why? Um, what oral history per se co- brings to the table that you wouldn't get? You you actually use the word documentary, uh, like an oral documentary. Um, what what does an oral documentary bring to the? table that a uh, you know a regular visual audio visual documentary I suppose um, you know what 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 can you do with audio that you can't do with video? Or maybe there's nothing, but I'm I wonder.
3: Well audio's just always been my medium. It's what I'm comfortable in. I think with video something changes with the narrative they're less candid they're more edited they're worried about how they they're looking uh, i used to interview veterans when i worked in i worked in madison wisconsin for a veterans museum there and i had one guy a younger veteran who kept blowing me off for the interview. And when I asked him what the deal was, he said, oh, Molly, I'm getting my teeth bleached (laughs) for the interview. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. It's audio only. And it just sort of puts people at ease. And in radio, we talk about those driveway moments where we can kind of get absorbed in the story we're hearing, and we can also multitask. But with audio as a format for oral history, it puts the narrator at ease. It's also, uh, there's a lot less bandwidth. It's easier to store and play. And a lot of oral histories are used by researchers and writers, and they just want to keyword search the transcript, uh, find the information they're looking for, and use it as a as primary source in their in their research.
0: Well, I, I think we share your uh, affinity to uh, audio uh, <laughs> recording as a, a way to communicate uh, interesting stories and even complicated material. Uh You know, 50 years for the agency, Uh, NOAA plays a critical role. I think most people out there know NOAA through the National Weather Service or the National Hurricane Center, which is one of – I am a frequent visitor uh, to that part of the agency's website. Uh, But it's an amazing agency that serves such an instrumental role on the American shoreline. why tell the story of this incredible agency through individual interviews or personal interviews with the people what is the advantage of approaching uh the history of this great agency in this manner
3: sure i think of oral histories as these living talking time capsules of whole human lives and all of the context and content of the, that life you know think about the people you've lost and if you could just press play and hear them come back to life and tell their whole story to you and so in a hundred years it's going to be really valuable to understand the factors the weather events and how they're connected with all the other line offices at noaa through eyewitness accounts um, there we have interviews in our collections in our collection with fisheries regulators, but also the fishermen, the processors, the consumers. There's interviews with folks who make weather predictions, but then those who are impacted by the weather events. And so again, it's gonna be really important, especially as the climate changes, to document and, and measure those changes through eyewitness accounts.
0: It's interesting, so that the Voices project is not simply Recording of NOAA uh, professionals who have worked at the agency over the last, you know, f- few decades, going back even to the 70s. It also includes uh, stakeholders in the issues that the agency covers. Can wh- tell us about the balance of those two uh, sectors of of who you're speaking with, uh, the professionals inside this federal agency, and the communities that they're engaged with.
3: Sure. I would say we have more interviews from community members and and fewer interviews from non-NOA folks, and so it's interesting to see how our services are touching our stakeholders. Um, there are currently over 1,800 oral history interviews in our collection, and they come from 85 different unique collections, and they're contributed by over a hundred partner organizations or individuals. So we have universities, nonprofits, historical societies. Um, a c- former colleague of mine, Keith Ludden, has a wonderful collection about the last sardine cannery in, in Prospect Harbor, Maine. Um, there's an, a great collection that documents the modernization and restructuring at the National Weather Service with the folks who are involved, who some of whom who are no longer with us. Um, and so it's NOAA's institutional history, but also the impacts of the things we study and, and look at, climate change, satellite data, research, um, and, it, and it's from across the country. This originally was called Voices from the Fisheries, but we started to realize that you can't have an interview about the fisheries. That isn't also about, you know, coastal management, weather and all of the other things. And then Cheryl Oliver and Greg Romano have spearheaded the NOAA 50th Oral History Project and commissioned me to start interviewing more NOAA leaders and so that their legacy isn't lost um, through these interviews
1: wow so there's just so much there's so many elements here uh and i i just think it's such a worthy undertaking i'm so pleased to hear molly that uh this is happening and that uh it is in such good hands i can tell that you really love and care for uh these stories um i guess like i'm trying to think about So you, you, I imagine you've listened to a lot of these. I mean, there are a lot of stories have been collected. I imagine you've listened to a lot of these. I mean, this might be like, what trends do you, what, what vibes are you picking up broadly? Like, like, are there some broad stroke trends across stories that you, that you see over time that you would mind sharing with us?
3: Well, it's really tricky because the collection's so diverse. Um, as I mentioned, we've got all the different line offices of NOAA represented, 30 different states, all different kinds of stakeholders, but I think some trends are definitely climate change um, and then you've got sort of uh, an inheritance of tradition. I, I did a collection last year in Gloucester with Gloucester fishermen and the interviews I'm doing for NOAA with the NOAA leaders it seems like everybody who's involved in the agency or the people I interview have inherited their passion for the sea or for um, geology or hydrography wh- wh- whatever it is from through the generations and so it's really important to get family history and and things you've inherited from from your parents and grandparents. Uh, the interviews I do are life course interviews. So we get a sense of family history, um, migrations, childhood, growing up, and, and how their lives and careers have evolved. Um, I think some obsolescence of technology, how technologies are changing. Um, let's see, I have a list somewhere I, I should probably look at. <laughs> I'm not doing a very good job answering this question. I, I, institutional history. No, no, so no, no. I, know it's institutional history. <laughs> you're
1: you're getting at exactly the little conundrum in my mind, which is, you know, you you person. These are such personal stories about the lives of uh, Americans. I suppose it's fair to say um, p- p- individuals, people who are, who intersect uh, with this space, and. It's a really interesting uh, thing to take those individual stories and then weave them by offering this database, basically, the searchable database, ladies and gentlemen. So when you go to the website for the voices, you can search through all of these collections. You can search by keyword. There's like, you can really look, but like there's a volume here.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an amazing
1: collection. And, and I'm just wondering, like, you know, going from individual story to a tapestry of themes. I, I just, you know, I, I can't imagine it's difficult, but I just had to ask, you know, you <laughs> had to ask if there was like a burning uh, theme or thread that you see kind of uh, woven through all of them.
3: What I'm really struck by is how quickly things change. We have a collection called Tales of Cape Cod, and these interviews were recorded in the 1970s with folks who were born and lived around the turn of the 20th century. There's an interview from someone who hung out with Marconi in a bar, and Marconi was getting drunk, bragging about how he was going to invent the radio and change the world. Um, We have an interview with someone who is the Uh, lone survivor of a shipwreck in the early 1900s. These are things that are really precious and don't exist anywhere else in other formats. And that's what's so cool about even creating oral history is that what... Takes place in that recording does not exist in another format until you sit down with someone, press record, and ask them about their life story.
0: Hmm. Is it fair to say that a, a predominance of the of the discussion and the stories and the interviews relate to the coast itself? Uh, Noah's reaches beyond the coast, I guess. But what percentage of the time are you talking to residents along the American shoreline?
3: That's a little bit tricky to quantify, but up until recently. A majority of the interviews came from the coastline. Just in the last year or so, have we shifted and expanded our scope to include, you know, satellites, NOAA Corps, um, the Weather Service, and the other NOAA line offices. So I would say 85 to 90% of our collection hmm. takes place on working waterfronts and with folks connected to the fisheries. And just recently, have we expanded our, our scope?
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about what you're hearing because it it, it is interesting uh, to go back in time. You have this archive that that predates your arrival at the agency that goes back uh, decades. In fact, predates the agency. Yeah, predates Noah for sure. Definitely. Uh, you know, is there a lament? What what's the what's the feeling uh, along the shoreline? It and and I'll ask this. It kind of put this in the context of this is one of the most dynamic uh, land forms on uh, in the United States is the land-water interface. It changes physically with great frequency from storms and tides and wind and all of that, but it transforms economically. Uh, You talked about the end of the sardine fishery in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, We're all familiar with Cannery Row and the loss of the fishery in San Francisco. Um, uh, Gloucester Massachusetts the transformation the community and economic transformation of these areas um, so I'm wondering when you're when you're talking to people who have experienced that um, what is the is is it is, is there pride is there a sense of loss is there is there sadness is there what what kind of is it can we generalize that at all
3: well, that's sort of the wonderful thing about oral history is that each person's oral history is a unique testimony and contains their unique perspectives, feelings, and so what's wonderful about oral history is that you you can't generalize. Um, you know, when I interview someone in Maine about the Great De- uh, Depression, they'll say, Molly, we were already depressed. You know, when I would do these interviews in New Jersey, it was a different story, um, and so each person gets to fill in the historical gap with their own account. Um, with the fishing communities, I've found that there's just a lot of identity tied up into the, the fishing tradition and the in- intersections with family, regulation, environment, technology. Um, there's one guy I interviewed. I think this in- this interview is in the collection with, with uh, Sebastian Parisi, and he comes from a long line of Italian fishermen in, in Gloucester, Maine, in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and he tells a story about how growing up, one of his classmates said oh my dad's taking me to the baseball game and Sebastian says something like I didn't even know dads were supposed to take their kids to baseball mm-hmm. games because he was out fishing all the time and so you just get a sense of the pervasiveness and the power of, of that industry.
0: Um, to put this in a, in a more modern setting right now there is a substantial discussion going on up in the Gulf of Maine between the lobster fishermen and that community, and NOAA as the regulator and protectors of the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, it, I think it is reached a fairly high level of pitch, this discussion, been part of the, even the presidential discussion and, and campaigns included discussion of this uh, topic. Uh, when you're looking at that current event, um, Do you have a a sense of how uh, that experience is is being lived uh, in comparison to these transitions that you've seen in other communities in other decades?
3: Um, that's a really big question. And as yeah. I mentioned earlier, there's 1800 oral histories in the collection. So it's a little hard to keep yeah. track of who's saying what and when. I'm not aware of those conversations making it into the collection yet. There may be some ongoing oral histories that are looking at this and preserving this kind of conversation, but not that I'm familiar with at this point. I should say that a lot of oral historians have been disrupted by COVID this this year and we've had to adapt to this real paradigm shift in how we have these conversations so a lot of projects have been put on hold
1: yeah I can imagine uh COVID here and and Molly you'll have to you know I know you're a professional NPR quality we strive for it too we are uh working over an internet connection and uh it's been a little wobbly today ladies and gentlemen so we are doing the very best we can (laughs) <laughs> uh with the technology trying to get you the best audio quality but uh molly can you 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 you've we, we know that there's this is a voluminous uh uh collection uh i would almost dare say that if you were a if you're into the marine space this is like the netflix of oral
0: history <laughs> the netflix of the american shoreline
1: yes I, well f- without the flex w- it's oral history yeah it doesn't have any uh, uh videos mm-hmm. to my knowledge but you can go on there and you can search as i referenced before but could you give us a uh, a little tour of the archive and i don't know kind of show yeah. us around a little bit
3: sure and i should say there are some video collections there's some really cool videos from hawaiian fishermen um And there's some older videos from Sneed's Ferry, North Carolina, that were the the raw interview footage uh, for a documentary that was made about that area. Hmm. So there are some some video collections. It's just not been part of my uh, practice as an oral historian. Um, So you want me to tell you a little bit about the collection or the website, how to navigate it? Yeah, well, let's talk
0: about the collection. I want to know what's in it. you know what? We broadly, sure. I mean, it's 1800, so there's a lot. But if we were introducing our audience to uh, the subject matter, could you walk us through sort of broadly what's inside this treasure box you've created?
3: I like to say that we've interviewed anybody that has a, a relation to planet Earth. <laughs> so we <laughs> have interviews with folks who can describe, um, you know, the institutional memory of a place like the Woods Hole. Um, uh, Oceanographic Institute or different cooperative institutes related to NOAA. We have interviews related to declining or obsolete industries. We have interviews that talk about the fishing risks and hazards involved, you know, deaths at sea, things like that. We also have a lot of interviews in different languages. We have a, a, a Samoan collection. We have interviews with immigrants in New Bedford processing processors So there's lots of accents and regional dialects, and I think these things change so rapidly. Um, There's descriptions of geographic landmarks that don't exist anymore due to climate change. Mm -hmm. Then there's these really rare recollections. I mentioned the Tales of Cape Cod collection. In there is an interview with a woman who was a lighthouse keeper's wife during the first world war. <laughs> and these interviews are just so fascinating. Even the mundane points, like how she describes making oatmeal, it's just so fascinating to me. And she talks about treating soldiers who um, fell sick with the, the flu epidemic, from you know, the last flu epidemic. Mm. Um, There's interviews with multi-generational fishing families, fishermen, uh, female fishermen, and fishermen's wives. There's interviews with community leaders and public officials, and there's just eyewitnesses to every historical, regulatory, and environmental change. There's lots of immigrant voices in the collection, fishermen demographics, and now we're expanding our scope. So there's lots of interviews with folks um, from the Weather Service, but also who've been impacted by weather events like Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, um, and how their lives are are different as a result.
0: Woo, that does sound amazing. <laughs> um, if I what were, a treasure trove. Yeah, is what correct? It, really, it's it. Where what kind of staff does it take to compile <laughs> and produce this oral? archive. How many people are involved and how much audio production work do you guys do? Um, tell us more about how it's actually pulled off.
3: So actually, I'm part-time with Voices. I'm a part-time manager for the project. And then another part of my contract for NOAA is the production of these no- these interviews related to the NOAA fiftieth. So half my time is spent uh, doing collection management and outreach and processing new collections. A quarter of my time is spent uh, conducting interviews and transcribing and processing those for the for the collection. So I really rely on on the oral history practitioners that are out there doing this work that decide to deposit and share their interviews in our collection. Hmm. And that's why a lot of our collections need a little bit of polishing. Not everybody has the funds to get their interviews fully transcribed. Some of our interviews come from scientists who aren't trained in oral history methodology and so um, you know have a different focus so I really rely on the folks who are doing this work to know about voices and know that they can preserve and publish their interviews with us.
0: What percentage of the of the, uh, the archive is contributed from outside sources as opposed to being uh, produced by NOAA staff?
3: I think it's it's fairly 50-50 um, I'd have to double check probably more interviews from outside the agency than from within.
0: And how would I, if somebody wanted to submit a, a recording to be you know, considered for inclusion, is that something that they can do and how do folks interact with this project?
3: Sure. The first step is to reach out to me. If you're beginning a project, I'll help you get started. I've written a guide to doing oral history that really talks about how to do this from tip to tail. It's so much more than sliding recorder across the table and pressing record. So much research and preparation is involved. A lot of technique is involved in the interviewing um, and recording. And then so much has to happen afterwards in terms of transcribing, indexing, processing, arranging, describing. Um, so collections come to us in all kinds of states. I mentioned the collection from Sneeds Ferry. These were just video interviews. So they really could use some transcripts and some good descriptions so that they're more discoverable and accessible to Hmm. researchers, but at least we have them preserved and in a safe place on our website.
0: Is it it fair to ask you what your you know top two or three interviews are, the people who you have found most fascinating to listen to or learn about?
3: Sure, it's a little bit like your children, they're all your Favorite, and they're their favorite for different reasons. And I know I've brought this up before, but the Tales of Cape Cod collection really moves me because these interviews were not from not that long ago. These people were recorded in the 1970s, but they're talking about an era that feels so different from today. This, you know, before cars, before computers. Uh, one woman talks about being a teenager, and and teenage girls weren't allowed to go downtown unaccompanied. <laughs> um, wow. And so it's just really fascinating to see how rapidly things are changing, not just with traditions and social mores, but in terms of weather and, and technology. I've been loving doing these interviews with folks who uh, served at the weather service because they talk about, you know, in the last 50 years, they have gone from improving their predictions and forecasts and warnings. And this really leads leads to saving lives and so it's so impactful and it's so important and these folks take their histories with them when they go when we lose someone we lose their voice and their story and so you really have to do these interviews while you still can while someone's still with us while they still have their mental faculties there's an urgency to doing this kind of work.
1: Molly uh, as a NOAA product I I mean obviously all this stuff is Free and I imagine available uh, for the public's use and uh, enjoyment. Is that right? Yes. And uh, so you know we have uh, for the students out there in our audience. uh, You know, got a a fair number of y'all are in grad school. Uh, I think this would be a really interesting uh, little portal to jump into for for just what you're saying there, Molly just going back and realizing the how how different our society was only 50 years ago in the 70s. I mean that is that is just wild crazy stuff how how we are connected, you know, we still go by like Maine still exists, that coastline still exists, those municipalities still exist, the street names are probably the same. You know what I mean? But like the man has our society changed on top of it and it really brings that that those changes to light and you mentioned molly um you talked about kind of a, a an oral historian's approach to interviews and um you uh, you mentioned right off the bat you weren't talking about your first one i think you were up there in college it was the uh, with the abductees <laughs> uh what, what is the, what is the approach? And I mean, is this something that you adhere to on all of these interviews where you, what is the approach? How, how, how do you do this?
3: Sure. It's really developing a trust and rapport with the narrator. And it means doing your homework, showing up prepared and really knowing what you're going to ask, uh, having a big long list of things you really want to talk about. But I, when I teach oral history, I tell my students nine 80% of the questions you ask will be questions you didn't prepare. They'll be inspired from how the conversation unfolds. And so when I work with younger students, you know, who are maybe not that confident going into an interview and you can hear them go down their list of questions, they'll say, you know, where were you born? Who was your favorite teacher? But they'll they'll have missed whatever the narrator said and opportunities for exploration there. And so there's there's some phases to the interview. There's the introduction and getting to know each other, and then you develop sort of a rapport. And it really just means being a good a good listener, uh, being inspired by your curiosity, having empathy, and being quiet is so important.
0: When you um, when when folks out there want to access uh, this archive, uh, what is available online, and how how would you do it if you were? Uh, interested in exploring, uh, say, the tales of Cape Cod or uh, some of the other collections, the Sneed's Fairy collection. How do you do it?
3: So the website is voices.nymphs.noaa.gov. We still sit on on the Nymphs server because that's where uh, we we began in 2003. And they're our our biggest supporter. Um, And then you can explore the collection a number of different ways. You can search the collection by keyword, by affiliation, by interviewer. Um, by, you can plug in your hometown and see if there are interviews conducted there, or you can enter your hometown and see if there's interviews that talk about that mm. area. Or you can browse by collection name. It's just one long list of all the collections and see which ones, you know, sound interesting to you. Um, but probably the best way is to go to search, put in some keywords related to your interests or find someone that whose interviews you like and, and start there. Or you can search by affiliation. So we have interviews from NASA, from different museums, Florida Maritime Museum, Michigan Sea Grant, and then uh, Port of Los Angeles. Just it's a long, long list. It would take forever to go, go through. It's a long and then, list, and it's an interesting list. State. So there's, there's lots of ways to interact with the collection. And so not only can you listen to these interviews, read these interviews if there's a transcript, use it in your, your research, your exhibit, your podcast, or just for fun, but you can also contribute oral histories. So you can download my guide to doing oral histories, and you can start to interview your community members your loved ones. And if they fit within our scope, they can certainly be deposited hmm. in our collection.
0: Wow. Fantastic. So the website again, voices.nmfs, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, NMFS, was it gov?
3: Yes. That's right.
0: Well, I'm going to be there.
1: I'm already on there. You'll, you'll have to forgive me, uh, audience. I'm like on here typing in <laughs> keywords right now. <laughs> I just typed in Ventura. I was you like, I wonder like, if there's like, any Ventura the history talk, on here.
3: It's really endlessly fascinating.
1: I I love it. I love it. And I mean, to me, Molly, it's all about that. I mean, obviously, this is a a big project that almost, it almost ages, it almost gets more valuable with time. I mean, it's it's like a... As you said, it's like a, a time capsule. So, as these, as we, <laughs> as we move forward in time, and these things, these things almost become more valuable the older they get. I guess, For sure. they um, become more rare, more rare, and just more. There's just more perspective granted. I mean, given. I think, uh, in a way. I don't know Peter that's my that's my feeling. Well
0: is it is it permissible to to use uh, sound clips from the archive is that something that's allowed or do you have to have special permission or how can people utilize the archive?
3: The transcripts are freely available and downloadable the audio is by request. Well
0: I'm thinking Tyler you know we do some great interviews if we're down in a particular part of Florida we're doing a story about uh, something on the Louisiana coast or, or when we're over in Virginia it would be interesting to kind of peruse the archives see if there were stories and archive uh, histories of that area and maybe use a little bit of a clap as part of the yeah. show I mean I could see that just you know making the show a little bit richer and more interesting uh, the interviews that we do which are current affairs kind of interviews um, So how is that? Does this have a completion date? Is this this could go on forever? So I mean, imagine it does. I think it does go on forever. Uh, What is your what's your looking down the road? What's the agenda for 2021 and beyond?
3: Just to continue this good work. I, I hope I'm doing this really for the rest of my career and the rest of my life. I'm so obsessed with this work and I just have so much joy doing it. I can't wait for my next interview. I can't wait to put my daughter to sleep at night and just start transcribing. <laughs> I, I Not everybody feels that way about transcription. Nope. <laughs> but it's such a great way to get to know your tape and the stories in it. Uh, and I, I find it so relaxing. Uh, it's the best way to know about history, to to witness the, to talk to the eyewitnesses of it. You know, when I was a, an oral historian at Rutgers, I, I wasn't a big history buff, but to interview folks who were, you know, who, who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. or, uh, you know, were on the front lines in the Battle of the Bulge, what a way to be engaged in, in history. And when I taught oral history at, at Rutgers, I think the students really felt similarly. Uh, this was a, such a much more engaging way to learn about history because it was relevant and real and sometimes these interviews curse and tell stories and joke and laugh and so i think it's it's much more entertaining than a than a textbook
1: Mm. there's something about the the audio world this uh, this audio world and and molly you said it like these are podcasts before podcasts in a way um man so i remember peter this 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 is just a personal little story Um, This is in no way uh, But I just remember as a kid My grandfather gave me on tape Like a big thing That you might get at the library With It was plastic and it held eight Cassette tapes in it And you'd like it opened like a book it would like you'd <laughs> unfold it and there'd be eight tapes in there and tape one there was a i think there were two sides on tapes as i recall yeah an a and, and b. yeah there was an a and a b and it was Ira Festel who's the who's a legendary la radio person personality and he does the history of the united states on like oh, eight cassettes wow and it's a le- it's effectively a lecture you know and he Oh my lord! And the dude's going off the top of his head about the railroads. And it, it, but it took it, for me, as a kid in the nineties, it was like traveling back to when that thing was recorded, which must have been in the I don't know the eighties or something. <laughs> but it was like such a time capsule to me. And I was only ten years old. I don't know. Just the whole thing of undoing this book of because you know, right? Um, I just I think that there's really a it works. It works. It's yeah, really an it effective effective tool and it's fun.
3: You're exactly right. Yeah, these interviews allow you to travel back in time, take a look around and experience times and places that you'll just never be able to access otherwise and that's what makes a good oral history interview too is if you get that uh, visceral and visual and sensory experience. Uh, When I teach oral history I play a lot of clips And in these clips, you get weather reports and the feeling. And so you can really picture being in there. And it helps also the narrator sort of search their memory and relive their experience on tape.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you talked about the necessity of the trust and rapport between the narrator and the subject of the interview. And uh, this idea of immersing yourself in the subject and the personal life of the person that you're speaking with. I, I suppose when that is possible, when you have that much time to devote to uh, an interview subject, it's got to enhance the the nature of the conversation that you have. Um, what about sort of where you're just meeting someone for the first time? Is it is is it? Do you still do interviews that where you might spend a day with someone, start to finish, or are you committing more time? than that to get these histories down in a way that that really breathe and live and are inspiring.
3: Sure. I'd say my interviews average four or five hours and they're done over a couple of sessions. I like to set aside an hour or two and we go longer if we're prepared to or we end earlier if we're running out of steam. Um, I think my longest interview, I once interviewed someone for nine hours in a row, uh, you wow. know, just with a couple bathroom breaks. Uh, I've done interviews. I interviewed a friend's father last year six times for about two to three hours each session. And so sometimes it takes what it takes. Other interviews have been over and done in an hour and a half. And it really depends on what they give you ahead of time to do your research on, what kind of storyteller they are, how comfortable they are talking. When
0: you have an interview subject where you've spent, let's say you've done several sessions, you've got somewhere around three hours of recorded time, how much of that makes its way into the archive. Are they uh, edited down? How do you handle the raw file and getting to the final program?
3: So all of it goes in. My process has been to uh, record the interview, transcribe the interview, and I hand the transcript over to the narrator. And that's their opportunity to amend, correct, make whatever changes they see fit. So often the final transcript deviates slightly from the original recording, um, or my spelling is corrected, or sensitive passages have been redacted, uh, or uh, very rarely someone will restrict their materials for a certain time period, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a fairly verbatim account of what took place in the interview session unless they have uh, restrictions or changes that they would like to make.
0: Okay. So the conversation is recorded. Are these going to the Library of Congress or where are they housed? This, you know, reminds me of uh, what's the Library of Congress process that they've got, the recording booth that you can do now? Sto- sure. You- I, don't know. I yeah. know
3: that a lot of agencies and organizations partner with the Library of Congress and their materials are also deposited there. For the Voices Project, we don't have a physical archive. Um, I think because the nature of our archive has been crowdsourced, we trust that The collection contributors maintain their own physical archive, Hmm. but all of these interviews are stored and backed up on several NOAA servers. And so they're easily digitally accessible by me or other other folks.
1: Hmm. Well, that's that's good to hear, uh, because (laughs) good Lord, I can only imagine that some of that tape from the old days, really, you got to store
0: that in proper ways, (laughs) It's yeah, a big deal. It, it can deteriorate, and and the transcripts are the transcripts equally available on the site, uh, so I can search the transcript as well as the audio file.
3: That's correct. Where there are transcripts available, and because the collection is crowdsourced, not everybody has that time and the funding to do transcription transcription is laborious and time consuming i've been transcribing for a long long time and it still takes me probably four to six hours to fully transcribe every hour of audio so there's a lot involved and it's not everybody's cup of tea and not everybody has the funding for it, but it certainly makes your interviews much more discoverable. So say this interview with with, uh, the guy who hung out with Marconi, that's actually not transcribed. So if you put Marconi in, I think you'd find it in the description of that interview, but you wouldn't find the instances in the conversation until that interview is transcribed. So we're working with volunteers and other folks at NOAA who have a little extra time now that their jobs have changed because of COVID who can help us. But like I mentioned earlier, there's 1,800 interviews. And so we're just sort of putting a dent in it. But when I do my interviews for the NOAA 50th, for example, I, I do those tip to tail. I do all the research and preparation. I conduct the interviews myself and I transcribe and review them myself. So those are all fully available and accessible.
0: Now let's let's talk a little bit about the NOAA 50th interview series because this is also on the NOAA website where you're speaking to uh I guess the employees of the agency is, tell us about that project which is a little bit different from the Oral History Archive, isn't it? Or is it part of it?
3: It's part of it. So like a sub collection. Co- yep, commissioned by NOAA to start to interview NOAA's leaders as part of the celebration of the NOAA 50th anniversary this year. So I'm given a long list of folks who would be great to talk to, have unique perspectives, often have a long legacy with NOAA, Um, and so before COVID I was traveling around the country and doing these interviews and since COVID I've been doing those interviews remotely.
1: And how, how deep into this project are you and how long, is it a one year initiative for Noah's 50th or are you going to continue to conduct this work into the future?
3: I know it will continue for sure for another couple of years. Beyond that, I'm not too sure, but I really hope it does. This is so important. I think it should be part of the NOAA retirement package so that hmm. it, legacies aren't lost. And I have to tell you, when I do these interviews, the emails I get from the folks I interview are just gushing with um, their are they feel honored to be included. They were so thrilled to be involved. What a nice thing to share with their grandchildren and to have their work at NOAA recognized and preserved for posterity.
0: Right. Well, it sounds like a fantastic uh, project, and we're just so pleased to introduce uh, our listeners on, on the American Control line podcast to this effort and invite them to uh, dive into the Voices Oral History Archive at NOAA. Uh, well, Molly, closing thoughts on this project and what makes it so special?
3: What makes it so special is just the diversity of Voices included. You know, there's over 1,800 oral histories, and each one has something unique to say. Um, they talk about an experience that we weren't there for in time and space, and so it's really I don't know. I, I just think this is the most valuable and impressive collection of oral histories.
0: It's, it
1: sounds fantastic. I am <laughs> I am so happy, Molly, that we were able to get you on the American shoreline podcast. Um, and I think that uh, Peter, we got to be, we have to follow up with Molly. And we do uh, We have a lot to talk about and talk about some of the other things we've mm-hmm. got going on. I, I think the bare minimum, we could use your counsel sure. on how to, how to, Capture, ha- capture oral histories I think that there's just a huge value here mm-hmm. and so thank you so much for, for what you're doing with Noah I agree and I am so grateful that Noah is making the investment to do not only the broader oral histories project and, and uh, I guess thanks to Noah Fisheries for spearheading that um, and I hope that the other uh whatever they call the desks at noah what do they call them the services the services i hope that the they all get in on it yes everyone natural pitch in a little service. bit because the, okay final question if i may peter yeah no please because um molly you said i just i think that i hope that this continues to happen it should be built in and i've i would like for you to answer the question what what is the value like? what is the value there for NOAA going forward as an agency for the general for the public for the taxpayer what is the what, why is it that you think that this is such an important and valuable thing
3: well it's really immeasurable I, I think about when I first started my career I when I worked at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum as an oral historian a young kid came into my office and he said oh your program interviewed my grandfather but I didn't really get to know him very well before he passed away and so I was able to you know, cue up his grandfather's interview, give him some headphones, and this kid's grandfather got to tell him all about his life and the unique way it's lived. And when we do oral histories, we go, I mentioned earlier, we get that felt life access. It's sort of a 360 view of someone's life, uh, their impressions, perspectives, stories, beliefs. Uh, its We call it a different kind of credibility. It may not be exactly how it happened and when, but we understand what it meant to the person we're interviewing. So it's really imme- immeasurable to, to quantify what these stories mean for the loved ones next of kin, the community members they're related to, and the industries they talk about. But I think I calculated it one time and you know, there's 1800 and something interviews in the collection. 1800 of those were created by someone that wasn't me. And if you added, if you gave it a dollar amount, I think would be over a million dollars worth of oral histories that have been donated to the program for free. Um, And so it's really a win-win-win for NOAA to document its institutional history and legacy, to understand better its stakeholders' experiences, and to provide for the future uh, uh, testimonies of his environmental and historical changes.
0: Uh, Wonderfully said, Molly. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Molly Graham, the NOAA oral historian. She is the program manager for Voices Oral History Archive and just a real tremendous asset. Uh, at NOAA. And I got to say, more good work, but my favorite federal agency out there, these guys, they really do quality. I'm so happy they're they're doing this. It's important. And uh, I'm really pleased we were able to bring that uh, to our audience today, Molly. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again, please. I think we'd love to follow up with you.
3: I would love that too.
0: He just